Thank you for listening to the BJJ Brick Podcast. We'll be bringing you Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and good times. We hope to flatten your Jiu-Jitsu learning curve, help you get the most out of your grappling ability, and meet your goals both on and off the mat. Welcome back, my friends, to episode 173 of the BJJ Brick Podcast. I'm Gary. I'm here with my co-host, Byron. How are you doing today, Byron? Gary, I'm doing great. We're finally happy to have the BJJ Brick Podcast Coach of the Year, Larry Keith, on the show. So uh, happy to present him to the audience uh, as we do on the podcast world in audio. <laughs> you know, the cool thing is, We've now been in this for, what, three years, and this was our first year having it. So Larry is the very first BJJ Brick Coach of the Year. And, and we're going to have one each and every year. I, I think it's really cool. Um, um, so everybody who submitted this year and your coach didn't win, um, but you've got a great coach. Definitely uh, get in on it next year again. Send, send him back, and uh, we'll do it again. But I just can't wait to uh, talk to uh, Larry, uh, you know, the BJJ Brick Coach of the Year. There we go. So that's coming up very soon. But for now, I want to tell you guys about our audiobook we have for sale. It's your first year of BJJ, where I will walk you through uh, or over the hurdles you might encounter that first year of grappling. Uh, may it be finding a school, figuring out the good techniques, or just the social aspect of jiu-jitsu. Uh, there's a lot you could encounter right away, and that, could, that can kind of set you back. Or hold you back that first year. You might get through your first year just fine, but you maybe you could be a little bit further ahead by the end of that year uh, if you avoid certain aspects of it as well. So that's kind of the, the goal with the book. The audio book is to kind of get you grappling, keep you grappling, help you get the most out of your grappling ability, and uh, have a good time while doing it. And uh, The book is eleven ninety nine. The money goes to help support the podcast and the website, bjjbrick.com. And uh, sales have been good, and we're appreciating everybody who goes and checks out the audiobook. Let us know how you like it uh, if you uh, do get the book. Yeah, definitely check it out. Uh, like Byron said, sales have been through the roof. Uh, very good reviews and uh, definitely help you through your first year. So uh, check out the link on the show notes. Definitely make sure you uh, check out our show notes for our email list. Uh, definitely get on our email list. All we need is a valid email address, and that way you'll get the show delivered directly to your email, to your email. Inbox each and every week. That way you'll never miss a show. Um, very easy, crisp and clean, no caffeine. You'll never miss a show. So check out our email list. Crisp and clean like Gary is every time. We'll have like on this example, we'll have uh, Larry Keith, his school, will have a link. And you can go to the website and check that out. Or you can go to your inbox and you could see uh, you know that link there. So it's all easy. And if for some reason you forget the podcast comes out, you get a little email reminding you, hey, check it out. Here's what's happening this week on the show. Uh, this is a little way to stay in touch with you guys. It's pretty simple. Yeah, I think we're up to double digits now, so we're rolling. Double, di Yes, indeed we are. Triple yep. digits, actually, Gary. Triple, awesome. That's better than double. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of triple digits, we've got the man uh, of the for the quote here, Gary, a triple-digit man himself. Uh, Thomas are you saying Jefferson. he only has three? He only has three fingers. I don't know what I was in blind by that. By that, but uh, we'll go with that. Okay. <laughs> well, he's probably good at bowling. There we go, Gary. I think you have the quote here. What is the quote, my friend? The quote is: "Nothing can stop the man with the right mental attitude from achieving his goal." 
Nothing on earth can help the man with a wrong mental attitude. And that was by our friend Thomas Jefferson, four-stripe brown belt. Um, a positive attitude is the key to life. Uh, you know, I, I say that all the time when somebody uh, new comes into work in my department. Uh, the very first thing I say is, uh, you know, the only two things you need to to do to achieve success here is show up for work every day, which seems kind of hard for some people, <laughs> and and have a positive attitude. And a positive attitude is is basically going to affect you. It's going to affect um, your teammates, uh, everybody you roll with to get better. And and only you can really bring yourself down. You're gonna run into a bunch of obstacles that can be negative. It's up to you to turn that negative into a positive. It's, does it really bother you that much? I mean, we're in control of our own attitude. If, if we're positive, we hang out with positive people. We talk about positive things. Good things are going to happen. As soon as we let these obstacles get to us, we, we start, you know, complaining. It's everybody's fault, uh, this and that. I don't have as much money as this guy. Michael Morrow is not as good as Byron's, you know, so on, so on. Man, that just it just leads you down down a bad path. It's it's going to take you where you don't want to go. We we have to have a positive mental attitude to succeed in life. Yeah, all that is great, Gary. If you, but I got to say, if your Kimura is not as good as mine, uh, you have the right to be kind of grumpy because my Kimura is pretty bad. But uh, yeah, it's it is how you look at it. You know, we are all dealt different uh, cards in life, but you just have to to play the hands you have and to have a good attitude about that. Look at somebody who, who on some respects would be having a terrible day. Somebody who was in a car accident they, their car has been totaled. And, uh, you know, that would, that would ruin a lot of people's days, weeks, months, whatever. It's a lot of money, a uh, big headache. And, and, uh, hopefully, you know, uh, that's about it. But, uh, yeah, think of the, think of the guy with a quote, like Byron said, you know, the man with triple digits, Thomas Jefferson. And <laughs> sounds like from what Byron said, he didn't have all his fingers. He's probably had three of them, according to what Byron said. Byron said he had three fingers, and he could have really, uh, you know, went downhill from there. But no, he became president. Look at the guy. That's just impressive. I was really meaning his, his ability to score in basketball. He'd always get in the triple digits. Oh, he scored over 100 points a game. Oh, yeah. I thought only Will, Will Chamberlain and Lisa Leslie did that. And you're forgetting the Thomas Jefferson. I think you're saying I think you're saying he had a triple double. He shot a lot of three pointers. Okay, that works. <laughs> okay, uh, but what I'm saying is, if you wreck your car today, you know, hopefully you don't. But uh, that's 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 bad. That sucks. But uh, having the great attitude of, I didn't even get hurt, or if I got hurt, you know, say you lost your leg in a car accident, I'm not dead. You know that the, the, those are things that are way more important than the condition of your vehicle. And and so just having that spin, you could go through your whole month being upset about your car, you lost your great car, you're going to have to get get one that's not as nice. Or you can go through the whole week like ecstatic that you actually lived through this accident that could have killed you and and that you, you know you're lucky to you're fortunate enough to to be alive still. And just the comparison of those two different people who are in the same situation, take that example. You know, it's kind of an extreme example, but to the rest of their life. You know, you let's say you get fired today, 
that could be like the worst day, and it will probably be a rough day, but it could also lead to a great opportunity within you know a month or six months down the road. You're onto something that is, is way more exciting and interesting to you than you could have imagined if you were still stuck in the current place you are. So it's just that attitude of, of taking things, making some adjustment to it, and per, you know going forward. And uh, we see that in Jitsu a lot too. You might get uh, you know kind of beat up by your teammates today, and you could be upset about that and, and discouraged. But really, you need to be grateful that you have a teammate and you have a team that can do that to you and for you. And and, and there, that's your biggest asset is having quality training partners. And, uh, yeah, so it, it's all over the place. Having a great attitude makes all the difference. And and I know for myself and Gary, we like to train with people who have great attitudes. So uh, that's why we're always inviting the listeners to uh, get on the mats with us because you guys have been great so far. Yeah, uh, speaking of, I, I've kind of got an example that uh, just happened before we went on the show. You know, we're talking about having the right mental attitude, and and I was talking about besides having the right mental attitude, hang out with people with a good mental attitude. You know, it it's going to make your attitude a little bit better. If I hang out with a bunch of people who are downers, I'm going to be down. If I hang out with a bunch of positive people, there's a better chance I'm going to be positive. But um, we were talking about before we got on the show, I I've got a hamstring injury, uh, hurt my hamstring on a Thursday night playing basketball, and. You know, the morning before that, I broke my toe. So so I've just had some kind of injuries and tried to get on the mat this morning with a messed up hamstring and hurt it again. And, you know, to be honest, I was a little down. I, I've been sitting there thinking, and I consider myself a positive person, but I'm like, oh, boy, I might have to take some time off, you know, this and that. And, you know, so I was telling that to Byron. And the first thing Byron, I mean, he didn't say, oh, sorry, which, I mean, that's nothing wrong with saying sorry. Uh, it's, you know, he's just trying to be nice. But Byron didn't say that. And, uh, you know, I kind of appreciate it because that kind of just makes me feel like I'm a charity case. But, you know, Byron, you, you kind of made me feel a lot better about the situation. I told Byron I may take some time off. And may is the key word because if you know me, I, I'll find a way to get on the mats, no ifs, ands, or buts. But, but Byron's like, you know, even if you take a time off, your game's probably going to explode. You're going to still show up and you're going to watch people and, and train some people and talk to people and have fun, and, you know, be a positive influence. But your body's going to rest. You're still going to be around jujitsu. And when you come back, you're going to be so excited to come back. You're going to be healed. Everything's going to be feeling great. You're probably just going to, you know, explode. And, and just that little talk that lasted maybe one minute made me feel a lot better about if I do take time off or about my injury. And, and really it's an injury, big deal. It's I'll come back from it. I, I, you know, I can't let that get me down. You know, it was getting me down in the short run. Um, but you know, talking to Byron, talking to having friends and teammates that are positive influence got me back, you know, got my head back above water. You know, I was starting to sink a little bit. I was, uh, I was down. So that's just a testament to have good, positive people in your corner. When you do feel like you're in a dark spot, which I have no reason to be down. And sometimes you just need a little help from a friend. As, uh, I don't know who sang that, but it might have been like the Rolling Stones or somebody. <laughs> but sometimes you do need a little help from a friend just to, uh, just to keep you from drowning. And that's what you did there, Byron. So thank you for uh, being a positive influence on me. Yeah, Gary, i got to be honest. I was getting a little nervous when you were to say what I said because I, I don't remember it, but yeah. Uh, you know, I you always bounce back from injuries, but you rarely actually take time off. I do think that if you did take a week or even two off, your your mind stays in jujitsu, 
but your body kind of exits for that time and uh, you can come back and get some pretty good gains um, you know you, you haven't taken that much time off pretty much ever so uh, it's not like it's a regular thing for you but uh, yeah your mind will keep working on problems and try to figure things out and if you just stick around you know being around Jiu Jitsu uh, it shouldn't be a, a big deal for your overall game yep and once again like I said thank you thank you for the good advice <laughs> okay we and, better transition my friend yep don't forget to tune in next week as Dr. Byron will uh, solve our problems for us. Uh, catch me outside, Gary. <laughs> uh, well, Byron, Gary, do you yes. want me to do you want me to pay my copay in cash, <laughs> or can I use my debit card? Uh, you could just uh, be a Patreon supporter of the <laughs> podcast. No, we're all oh, good, Gary. Yeah, uh, I'll go on to Patreon. There you go. Um, no. Uh, I guess it's time, Gary, to transition to the uh, typical article of the week, but this time we're changing it up yet again. Uh, we do like to do articles, but we, we're trying this new thing every now and then. We've, we've done one or maybe two before. Um, Gary, I was driving home from work, and uh, it's early in the morning. I work a, a 24-hour shift, so I, I get to work in the morning, and then I leave in the next morning. But uh, driving home from work, it's kind of the traffic time of day uh, about 7 30 or so and i'm on the highway and it's backed up for about three or four miles and i can't really tell for sure how far it's backed up but we stop and i'm looking and man every time there's a hill i can see pretty far there's just cars sitting there I'm like this is not really what i wanted to do this morning is to sit for an hour in traffic so i uh, made an adjustment exited the highway as soon as i could and took the side roads home and uh, made it home just just fine, of course, a little bit later than usual, but uh, I was able to get home. And I, I probably could have still got home, <laughs> taking the normal way, the highway, the traffic jam, and been a part of that. But it would have been slower, it would have been more frustrating and more annoying. And I'm, I'm doing this, I'm basically taking a detour, and I'm thinking about, it's the same thing in Jiu-Jitsu all the time. You're constantly being fed uh, little roadblocks to us. Uh, a little traffic jam or a roadblock or for some reason a bridge is out uh, you might be trying to pass my guard to the right pass my guard to the right trying it and trying it and trying it and suddenly you look over and there's an opportunity to the left and if you really wanted to pass to the right uh, your your main goal probably is just to pass and so to, to kind of take that detour and pass the other way is something you could do or perhaps you know you're training for a tournament you're a few weeks out from that tournament and you injure, you, you pull a hammy or you break your little toe or something like that, uh, can you still compete? Well, you need to make that, that call, and only really you know that or your doctor. But uh, like, let's say a broken toe, you might have to make some adjustments to your game. You might not be able to play such a great, I don't know, spider guard or something like that where you're, you might be using your toe. You might not be able to even you know do your stand-up portion of the, of the game that you've been playing and working your takedown. You might have to start pulling guard or... Maybe do a fake guard pull or something to, to get the, the match started the way you want it. But uh, you're going to be fed some some detours either by choice or uh, by force. You know, sometimes you could, oh, I'll take the long way home. I'll go by the store today and pick something up. Or you might, there's a big old roadblock up ahead of you, and you have to change the way you were going. But you still want to get to that goal that you had. You want to get home. You want to uh, do well in that tournament. You want to pass the guard and get to a dominant position. All these are things that kind of I was thinking about as I was 
you know, stuck in traffic thinking about, yeah, I should probably get off the highway. I'm not really going anywhere right now. So I think that's just a, a way to look at uh, something while you're even while you're rolling. Am I hitting a roadblock? And how could I go around that? And uh, Gary, do you see this much in jiu-jitsu? Well, first of all, I do want to say I thought I was the only person who did that. I This sounds kind of weird, but I try to take a different way to work each and every day. And it might only just be one street, you know, for a mile. But it's kind of weird. People laugh at me that. Every day I just try to uh, go a different way. I try not to just do the same thing. And I don't really know why I do that. I guess because I don't have a time. I have to be at work. I can show up whenever. So it may take me a little bit longer. But that way I just don't see the same thing every day. I, I go down roads that I never have went down. And uh, when I tell people about this, they all laugh at me. And I had no clue you were going down this path and i don't think i've ever told you that i do that so i just thought that was kind of funny just because uh everybody calls me the weirdo for doing that but going back to it i do see see like what you're talking about in jujitsu is a lot of times you you were talking about that guard pass you know you want to pass left or pass right a lot of times i think sometimes we're we're too narrow-minded too our eyesight's too focused on one thing and doing it one way only and we just try to push down that that wall that's in front of us. You know, we want to pass, you know, left. We never even think about passing right. And we just keep pushing and pushing and pushing and, you know, getting tireder and tireder and tireder. And, and you know, pretty soon we just drop because we're so exhausted. And we do need to look at, you know, other streets. I mean, we don't want to just go down that dead end street and just get stuck and can't turn around, can't back up because now all of a sudden a bunch of cars are behind you. You do have to, uh, you know, open your vision, you know, the peripherals as we call it, you know, look out of the corner of your eyes. Uh, there's, there's another path. Like you said, we're all trying to get to the same spot, which is either, you know, we're trying to pass that guard or if you're coming home from work, you're trying to get home and you know, there's more than one path to get there. And sometimes I think we just, uh, just go down that same old path each and every time and you're going to get good at going down that same old path but each person is going to have a different obstacle for that path if uh you know i may not be a very good guard player and byron can pass my guard like it's swiss cheese and and keeps going to the same same way but then next thing you know he gets uh keenan cornelius and you know he's trying to do the exact same thing he does to me and he ends up in trouble it's uh he's gonna have to try to take a different path that that you know main street's not working he should have turned left on first street and so so I, I do think that's a good analogy i never really thought about how you know driving to work and driving down the roads translates to jujitsu and but that's a that's a very good analogy Part of the thing, and I didn't realize that you take different ways to get to work, but uh, that's that is interesting, Gary. I think that's part of your witness protection program that we're not supposed to talk about on the podcast. <laughs> you, you, people are after you, Gary, so uh, that's very scary. Yeah, well, that's why I started jujitsu. Yeah, because the people that were after me. It's all coming together, my friend. Yeah, but the bad thing is, when I started, I didn't realize jujitsu didn't work at, on ghosts. So I am a little frustrated with that. <laughs> Okay, you got to find the right path to, to choke out that ghost, Gary. And you're trying human techniques. You got to. I'll get it. there. Yeah, I'll get there someday. Yeah. More. Uh, the biggest disguise is to put some holy water in your uh, in your drink and then sneak that on the mat. But uh, anyway, <laughs> another thing about the detour. 
It, it we just helped. took a detour. It, yes, we have taken a few. <laughs> it, it, is that it helped? When I got off the highway, I knew where I was. This wasn't the first time that I that I have navigated this part of the city on these roads. Oh, Byron. I didn't have to pull up a map, Gary, to get yeah. and get home. I've been there before. Well, so same, same well, thing when it, you're passing the guard. Yeah. Well, I did get a message from your wife that said you did try to take that other way home, and you ended up lost. When you got out of your car to ask for directions, you got beat up, your car stolen, and they found it three weeks later. Was that true, or was uh, was she just making that up? They found it three days later, Gary. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean that that she she might have exaggerated that part slightly, but uh, yeah, it, but it does help that I'm familiar with where I'm going anyway. So, same thing. If you only pass to the left every time. That detour is going to be confusing for you. You're not going to be able to take it. You're not going to be able to pass to the right. And when you do get to the right, you'll have you'll be on the wrong side of side control for you as well. And you'll be a little bit mixed up. And you might have to circle all the way around the top and go north-south and get to the side or maybe cross over to Mountain and get back to the side if you want. If that's, if that's where you ultimately want to be, I don't know. But if you occasionally drive around the city, not on the highways, if you occasionally explore outside of your specific game, not all the time but you're familiar with it it's a lot easier Gary it, it, it makes it to where you know what's coming up at the next intersection you know how many miles you're going to go and then you're going to take a certain you know left or right up at this street and you're going to zig around the town a little bit but you're going to make it this is if I'm in a hurry this route's better if I'm you know not that big a deal maybe the sun's in my eyes I'll take this street that's going diagonal there's a lot of stuff going on there Gary and I think I just confused myself so uh, <laughs> no, but it is a good point. Like you start going down different roads that you normally don't go down, your game's going to get better and more efficient. Hence, your gas mileage is going to be better too. So uh, I think that makes a lot of sense. Wouldn't you agree, Byron? Well, uh, they say your gas mileage is better on on the highway. So, uh, it, it, but it, it, think about that, Carrie. You you're more efficient sticking to the place that you know the best. You don't have to use as much energy. If you're Ooh, able to pull one. off that first guard pass that you always like to do, if that works, first time, good efficiency, good gas mileage. Yeah. But if you're unless, to get unless, off the road, you'll burn up a little bit more gas, but you'll still get there. Yeah, less emissions. So, I mean, less emissions will be less chance of climate change. You're so, saying uh, submissions or emissions? Emissions. Emissions. But sometimes if you got a tight submission on somebody, that guy's going to emission something. <laughs> <laughs> It has happened, my friends. Not to me. (laughs) Gary, we have taken this little story all over the place. And made a detour. Yes. Made detours. And so usually this this time of the podcast was filled with an article of the week. Told a little story. We talked about it. We broke it down into a little jiu-jitsu style. Let us know if you like this. We've done a couple of them. We've got a little bit of feedback, but not a ton. And uh, next week we'll have an article as usual. And we'll probably consider doing another story or two um, like this again uh, in the near future, but not real, not right away. But uh, it's kind of fun to kind of throw out something like that and play with it and see where it takes us, Gary. Like a yeah, cat definitely. ball of yarn. Yep, I'm the ball of yarn and you're the cat. <laughs> so many <laughs> odd things I could say back to you at that one, Gary, but I'll leave it at that. Gary, I'm excited for the interview. Let's get on to interviewing Larry Keith. He is the most interesting grappler in the world. In the 80s, he started every match with a flying armbar. One day, he was running late for an open mat 
his car wouldn't start, and he was able to start it, too, with a flying arm bar. With a gentle sweeping motion, he can rock any crying baby to sleep. I don't always listen to podcasts, but when I do, I prefer the BJJ Brick Podcast. Stay sweaty, my friends. All right, my friends, I'm happy to bring Larry Keith to the BJJ Brick Podcast. Larry, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, your name uh, sounds familiar to a lot of our audience because uh, you are the BJJ Brick uh, Coach of the Year. Uh, you, one of your students wrote in an essay uh, kind of describing how you uh, affected his life off the mat. You really helped to pick him up in a time uh, that uh, was very difficult for, for him and his family. And I think it was a very uh, touching essay uh, when that when that really got at a lot of us. And uh, it, mm-hmm. it uh, the work you did... The bonds that you made with your student uh, was something that we definitely wanted to recognize. And I think that uh, talking to you a little bit before we got recording here, uh, it just sounds like you're a great person to have as a jiu-jitsu coach uh, on and off the mat. So, uh, Larry, welcome to the BJJ Break Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Larry, we can't obviously wrap you up in a essay and, and learn everything about you there. Could you maybe describe yourself? Tell us a little bit about who you are, uh, where you're training, and, and uh, a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm uh, I'm happily married with uh, two children. I have a nine-year-old boy and a five-year-old daughter, and uh, both of them also train jiu-jitsu and judo. <clears throat> and um, I've been practicing martial arts for roughly 30, 35 years, somewhere around there. I started in striking arts when I was a, a kid, like you know, so many other of us, um, and then. Uh, um, Kept doing that for quite a while, and then and then actually got involved with the uh, Umpqua Community College uh, here locally, at local college, and uh, needed a PE credit, and and uh, they offered Kodokan Judo as a PE credit, and um, I thought, well, that's an easy thing for me because I've already been practicing martial arts, and so I got in, involved in the class there and uh, discovered that there was a diamond in the rough. There was a, uh, that the instructor there was from Japan and from the Kodokan judo, you know, world headquarters. And, uh, uh, lucky enough, just happened to live here locally and, and, uh, was teaching judo there. And I, uh, started there about 1990 and, uh, trained there until they closed down the program eventually in 2002. Um, I was a, uh, assistant instructor from 1997 until, <clears throat> excuse me, until 2002. And uh, 2002 is when we opened up our dojo, so um, which is Dynamic Martial Arts, and we're located in Roseburg, Oregon. Um, uh, Roseburg's a town of about um, less than 25,000 people, and so uh, um, we've been operating for uh, going on 15 years now. Wow, Larry, that's a, that's a long time to be running a martial arts school. Uh, what was your original desire to open up your own place? <laughs> Well, it's funny. Um, my original desire was based on two things, really. Um, my uh, my sensei was moving away, and so that was the that's part of why the program at the college was closing down. Um, and 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 he requested. He said, you know, I I know you like this stuff, and you should find a way to keep teaching it. And uh, and and so that was that was one factor. The other factor was I I really <laughs> opened up originally for sparring partners, just pe- to to have people to roll with. Uh, to do judo and jujitsu with, and uh, you know, and then it grew, 
you know, and, and you're, you're teaching people and you're paying you money to, to <clears throat> provide a, a quality class for them. And so, you know, the responsibility became greater. And, and so I started, you know, my, my focus changed on, Hey, this is, this is helping other people. And, uh, and I need to, you know, I need to change my focus on that and, and, and help them, um, and be a, a little more uh, selfless <laughs> about the situation. And, and it just, it, I think that, that attitude, uh, was something people picked up on and, and, and helped it continue to grow. So we started off with about, uh, I think a half dozen students that we had carried over from the college program. And now we have roughly about, uh, um, between 150 and 170 students right now. Uh, most of them are kids. Wow, that that is a lot of people, and it sounds like a lot of uh, kids training there. Uh, how about yourself uh, personally? Could you tell me a little bit about your development as a martial artist? Maybe the the style of jujitsu that you like to play, uh, what you do on the mat. Well, I'm kind of a, I'm a big guy. Um, and so, uh, you know, in the judo, I have, uh, you know, a, a black belt, a third degree black belt in, in Kodokan judo, and then, uh, currently a brown belt in, uh, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. Um, we're an affiliate of Impact Jiu Jitsu out of Portland and, uh, with, with Michael Chapman as my, my head coach. And, uh, I've, I've, because of my, because I'm big, I like to play pressure, of course. Um, I like to include the throws and the takedowns, and I've really focused over the years on incorporating um, uh, tying the, the throws and takedowns into uh, going right into dominant positions on the mat rather than uh, what I call throwing an opponent away. I don't want to just, just throw them and then have to chase after them. I like to uh, uh, you know be, throw and have good control so that you can do a good follow-up attack, a good guard pass, or a good position you know, land in some kind of dominant position. Um, and then, uh, pressure passing. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of pressure passing, a uh, big fan of, uh, <clears throat> the pressure game uh, overall. Um, but, uh, but I, I've also focused on trying to be as smooth as possible, you know, because of this, um, being a bigger guy. Um, I, I try to avoid the, uh, uh, what do you call it? When, when, when it, I've had, I've had smaller guys, you know, over the years, you know, they'll say, well, that, you only got away with that because you're big. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, maybe if your jujitsu was a little better, <laughs> it would have <it> <laughs> worked, you know? So, but, um, you know, so, so I focused on trying to be smooth and, 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 you know, try not to use, uh, or be strength dependent. You know, I don't think there's anything wrong with being strong or, you know, or using the strength, but it needs to be applied in the right direction and in the right manner. How would you describe that scenario of it's okay to be strong and to even use that strength, but to really uh, not abuse it? How would you coach a, a newer person who is, is a big, strong person, they want to do well, but they're really overlooking the technique? How would you kind of coach them back to the technique portion of Jiu-Jitsu? Well, one of the things that I'll discuss at the end of a class sometimes when uh, – when we have a, a group of new students, you know, a couple of new guys or whatever, you know, or, and, and uh, maybe some white belts that have been with us for a little while. Uh, at the end of the night, after we've gotten in some, some grappling rounds, I like to point out, you know, look, look around you and look who's breathing really hard and look who's not. You know, you're going to see the advanced guys a little bit more, uh, a little bit more cool and collective. And you're going to see the, the, the newer people huffing and puffing uh, quite a bit. And, and I explained that that's because, these guys, the advanced guys, have 
jujitsu tools and they're using those tools. And right now as a beginner, you don't have those tools. So you're using the tools you have, which is your, your strength and the thing, other things that you, you depended on. And those things will, uh, will, will work for a while, but then you're going to exhaust those. And when, when you're exhausted and, and tired is when jujitsu really starts to happen. And that's why these guys that are in the upper ranks are able to wear you down and then, and then, you know, work their will on you. <laughs> yeah. That, and that's an easy observation for a new student to make is they feel like, yeah, they're getting beat up, but you know, I'm also new here and, and maybe some athletic uh, problems with, uh, what I, I'm able to do, but you look around and the people who are good at it aren't particularly breathing that hard. They, you mm-hmm. know, look like they just kind of went been jogging for a little while. It's not not <laughs> not much really going on. And and the newer students are laying there exhausted, you know, contemplating uh, calling an ambulance. You know, nothing that bad. But you know, it's just uh, <laughs> yep. it, just a night and day difference. And yes, they're doing things differently, and you're going to get there eventually. But uh, <laughs> continuing oh, yeah. to work so hard all the time as far as um, using your strength and your attributes like that may not always be the best thing uh, when you start now. Right, right. I think, um, and and I've had over the over the years, you know, a variety of different kinds of students, you know, and and, and one of my observations is that for for me as a as a trainer as a coach, it's it's always been easier for me to take somebody who's um a little more passive and 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 uh, slower and methodical. And turn them into, uh, you know, a quality grappler uh, versus somebody who's, you know, um, we used to use the word spaz, somebody who's yeah. spazzing out. We, we actually, uh, my son coined a new phrase. He says glitching. He says when they're <laughs> glitching out. Um, but you know, when they when they come in and they're very aggressive and and very, it's it's in their nature to be uh, aggressive and strength dependent. It's harder to, I found it's harder to slow somebody down than it is to speed them up in that case. You know, um, it's easier to take somebody who's calm and, 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 you know, teach them quality jujitsu and then, and then teach them aggression later on. So. Well, that, that's an interesting concept. I haven't really thought about, uh, having the different poles there to, you know, one's going too fast, one's going too slow and which one is easier to actually fix that. Um, right, <laughs> Larry. You mentioned that you kind of just fell into the the role of of having students and coaching. You know, your your instructor kind of uh, headed out of town, and you know, uh, you decided that you wanted to continue to train. So you uh, were providing mat space, and, and as that grew, you ended up uh, really fitting into this role. Could you tell us maybe a little bit more about that situation and what that was like uh, going from just uh, one of the training partner, you know, people that happened to have the uh, the mat space to Really stepping up and and being the uh, the main coach and the owner of the gym. Well, I think uh, you know there are a couple of things there. Like one was um, I'll, I'll backtrack a little bit. My, I met my wife uh, at the the dojo at the college. Uh, I was assistant instructor at the time, and and uh, she actually enrolled in the class a, a couple of weeks late, and I was assigned the task of of catching her up with the rest of the students and. And so that's how we became acquainted. And she's she's originally from Russia. And so that summer she went back home to Russia and um, didn't really know if I was ever going to hear from her again or whatnot. And and she came back the following fall and we actually got reconnected and, and started dating. And then and then uh, and then uh, a few months later, we're engaged. And then a year later, we were married. Um, 
And so, and that was a 2002, that was the same year um, that we opened up the dojo. And she was, she was a, a major driving force behind that as well, because I was kind of a talker saying, yeah, I'd like to do this and we would like to do that. And she was the one that was getting on the internet and looking up, you know, prices on mats and, and, and figuring out how we were going to buy the mats and find a space and do all that. And she, and she really got the ball rolling. And, uh, at that time, uh, she was a judo brown belt herself. And, uh, so we got the, we, you know, we got a small place, uh, you know, in a, in a downtown area upstairs from a China shop of all things. <laughs> and, uh, and so we, you know, uh, that was, that was a, a major, part of it you know but the uh the other point was that uh, the a reality set in with us too where you know when i was helping run the judo program at the college uh the college took care of all the business end of things you know it was there was no uh business knowledge that was needed you just showed up you taught class and you left and so when we first opened our place up we thought well heck you know we put our name on the door and and uh, and put some mats on the floor and people are just going to be you know uh lining up to to come in and and train with us and and that, that wasn't the case and so we had to learn about the business end of things and that that took a while you know i've i'd already been a, a lifelong martial artist but and 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 so i felt i you know was confident in that area but the business end of it was a totally new thing for us and uh so that was a a growth process in itself, uh, figuring out how to run the business end of things. Uh, Larry, do you remember when it started to maybe uh, turn the corner and start to become easier to run the business side? Um, yeah, we we went through a few, uh, you know, consulting uh, companies, you know, kind of like, um, um, you know, but they were, but they mostly dealt with karate schools. And so we had to modify a lot of things that they were, they were, they were doing, you know, and, and, you know, like, um, you know, the belt ranking systems and, and that type of thing, you know, Kodakon judo and Brazilian jiu-jitsu, you don't get your black belt and, in just a couple of years, it doesn't happen that way. And so we had to modify, um, some of our programs to kind of fit our belt ranking system and, 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 and that type of thing. And, 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 and that, that started to gradually work more and more and more, um, about three years ago, we moved to a location that seems to be a, a, a really, you know, blessing to us. We um, moved right across the street from the local boys and girls club, and we have uh, nine schools, nine uh, um, uh, elementary and uh, middle school, high school in our in our area, and all of those schools have a school bus drop off at the boys and girls club, which is across the street from us. Um, we have an, we have a, a good relationship with the boys and girls club. I do summer camps, uh, bully prevention camps with them every summer. And so we, we developed a pickup system where uh, kids can be dropped off at their club and we can walk across the street, pick up their kids, pick up the kids that train with us. I mean, and, and, and bring them over to the dojo and they get to train with us. And then, and then when they're done, we can take them back over and check them back into the boys and girls club and their parents can pick them up there later. Um, and that the location has helped quite a bit, and and we have a, a larger facility now. We're about we have a six thousand square foot facility. We have um, about twenty five hundred square feet of matting in there right now, and we're working on adding some more actually. Um, but I think that really helped uh, our kids program quite a bit, being across the street from a, a high traffic area for for parents and kids, and 
and and then being able to see you know what we were doing and and uh, we did you know the summer camps and those types of things that we were doing helped parents uh, see the value in what we were doing and so that that really sparked the interest. It's an interesting uh, use of your location. Uh, I don't know if you if you plan that or if it just happened, but could you maybe describe what your summer camps are like that you teach there? Well, they're usually um, about a week long camp, and they're what we call a half day camp, so so about three hours. Um, which at first was a challenge. You know, how do you occupy kids for three three hours? You know, <laughs> um, and and keep them busy and keep them happy. Um, so so we we had to learn some some games and and a lot of things you know to do with the kids to keep them occupied and 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 having fun. You know, because that's the kind of the, one of the biggest things with with teaching the kids, especially, is that it has to has to be fun. If it's not fun, then they're not, they're not, they're going to lose interest in it real fast. Um, and so what what we do with the kids is we we spend time through the week teaching them about bully prevention, with uh, how to deal uh, with bullies verbally, how to deal, you know, with uh, the different uh, um, categories of bullying, you know, um, and then also how to deal with bullies on a physical level, as far as a, uh, you know what's allowed in their in their school systems and that type of thing. Because you know, back in the old days, we were taught you know, block punch, you know, that was kind of the, the system for dealing with, dealing with bullies. You block, block, punch and kick. And, uh, schools in, in our area have what they call a zero tolerance rule, meaning that, you know, if, if two kids get in a fight, regardless of who started the fight, both kids will be suspended from school. Um, and so we've, we've kind of borrowed something from, um, uh, the Gracie bullyproof system. We borrowed a few, you know, just a, a kind of, um, modeled our system a little bit after theirs with some of the things that they do. And so one of the things that we teach that, that, that I learned from, from that program was, um, the control and negotiate. And so what we teach the kids is, you know, how to, if it does become physical, how to, uh, deal with the bully without punching or kicking the bully and protecting themselves from being punched and kicked. And then how to verbally, address that situation when they actually end up in the principal's office, you know, Hey, this is, you know, I, I took these steps to keep from, you know, to prevent this bully from hassling me and it continued and continued and finally escalated to where it became physical. And, and I took steps to protect myself and make sure I didn't get hurt, but I also took steps to make sure the bully didn't get hurt. And so, and, and, and kind of a main point that we make with the kids is that their, their family is going to back them up if they, you know, if they get into those types of situations, we want them to be able to to go to their parents and and let them know that they're being bullied and and you know who to communicate with. Um, and and so, you know, we we tell them, hey, we're not we're not guaranteeing that you're not going to get suspended from school if this happens, but we are. I am going to let you know that I'm not going to be mad at you, and your parents are not going to be mad at you if you took the right steps. And then it still got to this point. So, um, so that's part of what we we run through the bully camp. Um, with with those types of ideas and and then uh send a lot of information and literature home with the kids for their for their parents to read and then uh, we usually do a, a end of the week graduation with the kids where we will um have them uh demonstrate some of the techniques that we've been working on uh, for their parents and then uh present them with a white belt and a certificate and and that kind of uh, lets them earn their white belt and then and th- those are primarily kids that don't normally train with us and so it also creates a nice doorway for them to to enter into our dojo and become you know students here as well 
Yeah, you get them. I guess you get them hooked in that, and you, you show them that it has some some pretty good benefits, even while they're at school. Um, n- not all not all bullying is necessarily physical. Um, how do you how do you right. what advice? We always hear about how not to get you know beat up on the playground and this sort of thing. But sometimes just kids are relentless with picking on each other, and 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 really could ruin uh, you know someone's day, week, or semester. Um, you know, just mm-hmm. being being ruthlessly uh, mean to somebody. How do you recommend that kids deal with that sort of thing? Well, we, 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 um, there's a, there's a few different things, you know, um, the buddy system is good, you know, so we tell the kids how to, how to use a buddy system, uh, so that if they, um, and it doesn't mean that they, as a buddy come up and, and, you know, attack a bully who was picking on their friend, it means that, you know, maybe they're going to come, come, come up and, and grab their friend by the shoulder and say, Hey, let's go do something else. And just kind of pull their friend away from the situation and, and just kind of show the bully that, you know, there's some backup here. This kid, this kid has a, has a friend, you know, who's going to back him up. Um, so buddy system is good, you know, um, and also just the, we do, um, another thing that we borrowed from, uh, the bulletproof system is, uh, the talk, tail tackle. And, and that's kind of an important piece of it because kids often don't know, they're told to tell somebody, but they don't know who to tell, you know? And so one of the things that we, that we teach them is the right people to tell in a situation like that, especially at school, you know, they need to tell their, they need to tell their teacher, they need to tell the the, the principal and they need to tell uh, uh, their parents. And then, if, and then I tell them, you know, if, if you're a student here, you need to tell me too, you know, because if I'm, if I hear that you've, you're just getting into fights at school, it's not going to bode well with me. But if you, if I know that you're taking the right steps and that you're dealing with the bully situation, then I'm going to back you up. You know, I'll, I'll even go to your school and, and talk to the appropriate people about it. But, um, you know, so we teach them the, the talk, tail tackle and then, you know, talk to the bully first is t- telling the bully that they don't like what they're doing and they want them to stop. So it's kind of giving them um, an idea of, uh, especially with the younger kids, you know, I explain to them sometimes that maybe their friend doesn't even realize that they're being a bully. Um, and I explain it to, you know, and we're talking about five, six year olds, kids, little, little kids. And I'll explain to them that, you know, Hey, if you're, if your buddy hits you on the shoulder, you know, and, and it's just something he does and, and you ask him to stop and he doesn't stop then he's not really as good of a friend as you think he is. He's, he's being a bully to you. And that's when we're going to address it further, you know, but if you ask him to stop and he does, then maybe he, maybe he actually is your buddy and he just didn't realize that he, that he was you know hurting you. Um, and the same thing verbally, you know, if somebody's saying something that, you know, you, you can respond to it. And then if they continue with it, then that's a, that's a bully situation, you know, and there's a difference between conflict resolution and, and, and bully prevention, you know, conflict resolution is just, just, you know, people don't always get along. And sometimes, you know, kids will argue with other kids and it doesn't necessarily mean it's a bully situation. It means that they just don't see eye to eye about something in particular. Um, if it's an ongoing thing and there's an imbalance of power and, and, you know, other traits of bullying, then that's, that's what, that's what defines bullying. Then, then, uh, the kids need to deal with it. Yeah. That it sounds like a great program you have going there. Uh, you kind of teamed up with the boys and girls club. How did you, how did you approach them? Did you just walk in and talk to them and see if they were open for this sort of idea or how'd you get that ball rolling? 
Well, actually, uh, they have a summer camp program that they do that includes uh, numerous different sports. And so kids can register to do lacrosse or they can register to do uh, volleyball camp and that kind of thing. And so it goes on for a week at their at their um, their facility. And uh, they actually approached me. um, How many years? Five or six years ago. And. And uh, we jumped on it with the apps. Of course, we want to do that. That'd be great. And so it was a. Um, that's actually part of how we found our location was we were we were someplace else. We were up the roadways, and driving in one morning for for a summer camp. I I thought, man, this, this there's a lot of buildings around here that would be nice to it'd be a good place to run a dojo. And uh, coming out from one of the days of of camp, I look across the street and here's a big for rent sign on the building. Okay, we've got to check that out. And and so the next thing, next thing we know, we're moving into the place. Um, but their uh, their camp has been going on for a long time, and now now we've been part of it for probably, uh, like I said, maybe maybe about six years. And the last two years, it's actually been uh, they had to put a cap on it because there's been the the interest in it with the kids has increased so much so that they had to actually put it on a, a cap on it and, and, and say, well, look, we can only let 40 kids do this this time. <laughs> so, which is, it, it's, it's fun, you know, uh, to know that we're, we're competing with the other sports that are in that, in that summer camp. And we're at the, the top of the heap right now. Are, are most of the kids wanting to sign up for this because, uh, they're like currently victims of bullies or that it's just a fun activity for them to do and, and picking up these skills is just an added benefit. I, th- I think it's mostly because they, they, they want to do something fun and different. Um, and I think their parents are part of the influence in that too. So I think sometimes maybe their parents are wanting them to, uh, you know, maybe learn a little bit of martial arts, learn a little bit about self self-defense and, and then, uh, kind of, it's a good way for them to test it out and, and see, you know, kick the tires a little bit and see if it's something they want to continue with their kids. Larry, I'm interested in hearing your thoughts about the zero tolerance, tolerance policy towards fighting. Um, the way I, let me make sure I'm on the same page with that means if, if uh, little Larry and little Byron are both in like fifth grade and I go up there and I punch you right in the face, we both, mm-hmm. no matter what, get suspended or, or we both get the same trouble. Is that, is that the way it is over there? That, that's pretty accurate. That's pretty accurate. Um, and so how, if you go to the school to, to talk uh, with the administration about one of your students that happened to have a little bit of trouble, uh, what's the conversation like? Well, if um, Particularly if the if the kid has taken the right steps, you know, if they've talked to their teacher, they've talked to their principal, they've talked to their parent, they've talked to me, um, then then it's that's a sign that there's a problem, that there's been a problem, and and that these adults should be uh, kind of they're they're in the loop. They know that there's an ongoing problem, and so that's one of the things that I would typically address is, you know, obviously this has been going on for a while. If I know about it and, and, you know, you as the principal know about it, then um, it's been going on for a while and it's not just some isolated incident. This is something that's been an ongoing problem. Um, You you know, and so that's, uh, that's one piece of the approach to it, you know, and the other, the other pieces, you know, that um, I can't really change their rules as far as their uh, zero tolerance rule. And and it was done originally as a 
as a method of bully prevention. But what it, the way I the way I view it is it's it's kind of like uh, having laws. Um, law-abiding citizens are going to obey the laws, but criminals are not. You know, they've, they've made the choice to be a criminal. And in a bully situation, the bully is not really um, influenced so much by that zero tolerance rule. Um, the the good kid, the victim, is the one that doesn't want to get suspended from school. You know, um, and so they they have they're less likely to defend themselves because they're afraid of the fact that they're going to get suspended from school. Uh, and that enables the bully to uh, at least verbally harass the kid e- even more because there's no fear of re- retaliation. Um, and so that's, you know, I- I've talked to um, the school superintendent and he really likes our bully prevention programs. Um, but just that's kind of just a a rule that's already been kind of set in stone. And we're, we're you know, we're working with them and we're trying to see if we can make some changes happen. But I, I really don't foresee them taking away that rule at any at any point in time uh, because you know it, it it has reduced bullying by a small percentage. It, it but I just don't think it does a good enough job. Yeah, uh, own opinion on this one. It's a pretty lazy way to to try to figure out what happened <laughs> during these situations. We'll just punish both of the kids equally and uh, move right. on. And a lot of a lot of good kids who end up in kind of a tough spot end up getting the punishment that that really affects them negatively and they get seen as a bad kid now by their others, you know, by their peers and they kind of, uh, I don't know, it could do some actual, uh, damage on their image as well. Yes. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, and, and, you know, just their self self image and self worth too, you know, and, and, and just the fear, you know, the, that, that's an added fear. They're afraid of the bully. And then they're also afraid of the consequences of being suspended from school, you know, and like I said, that's one of the things that we really try to communicate with the kids is, hey, you know, your parents are concerned about your safety more than anything else. You know, and if you if, if somebody is attacking you and you don't defend yourself because you're afraid you're going to get in trouble at home, that's that's an incorrect way of, of thinking. You you know, you really um, your parents want you to defend yourself. Your parents want you to protect yourself. They don't want you to go out and pick fights and get into trouble. But if somebody's trying to harm you. Dude, they, you know, and they can't be there to protect you. They want you to be able to protect yourself. Yeah, that's that's well said, Larry. You mentioned that you have a lot of kids in your uh, actual school, not just the going there and teaching the summer classes. Uh, what are some of the goals you have for your students that are uh, children? Well, we um, we teach jujitsu and judo, but we really we really like to consider ourselves kind of a higher education system. You know, um, we, we are teaching leadership skills. We're teaching, uh, kids things that we think will, will help them later on in life as far as, uh, career goals and life goals. Um, you know, so there's, there's literature that we, that we supply our kids with there's, uh, and, and recommend to them. Um, uh, leadership material. We do a monthly um, homework with our, our uh, kids that are enrolled in our leadership program that um, gives them a, a video module that they watch, and then they they do a homework sheet on it, and they get the, you know stripes on their belt for that, um, which they love. They love getting stripes on their belts <laughs> for for uh, as an award for for uh, you know bringing in homework for us. Um, so we do a lot of different things that are not just um, physically jujitsu based. We do a lot of things to to promote their um, their self growth. Um, 
and, and develop them into the, the future leaders. You know, that's, that's, that's kind of one of the, the main goals for us. We like them being able to, you know, protect themselves physically. We like for them to develop the confidence that comes with jujitsu training. Um, but we think that really carries over to, to uh, life skills and not just, um, not just the physical part of it. And how do you explain that to to parents that are interested in getting their kids enrolled, but don't really know if it's any different than the soccer program or you know having the kid play tennis in the afternoons? Yeah, that's a, that's kind of a tough one sometimes because I think parents really see um, jujitsu as a recreational thing, as a um, a sport that's you know like most sports are seasonal <clears throat> so a lot of times we'll get a question well how long will they do this uh this martial arts thing you know and and me being a, a lifelong martial artist i my answer is you know for the rest of their life you know <laughs> this is not a this is not a uh just a, a one-time thing this is something that if they uh, if they want to they could continue to do it forever you know um but uh, you know, so that, that's a tough one to get a hurdle to get through with the parents sometimes uh, as as far as that. But, you know, the main thing is, is uh, I don't know, can, educating the parent on the value of the program uh, and, and versus the price sometimes, too. You know, um, they have to see the value in it, that it's going to improve how their kid behaves at home, how their kid behaves at school. Um the confidence that their child is going to have in those places, um, the 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 you know, and then the physical things too, as far as the balance, coordination, and ability to defend yourself, um, you know, all those things kind of add to it. And 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 really, it's just about um, you know, conversation with the parent is usually about um, you know, educating them on the value of the of of the program and what their child is really going to get out of it, not just not just a fun uh, activity for. For the you know for for a couple months it's going to be a lifelong thing that's going to affect them. Yeah, we could we could definitely hope that, and if they do enjoy it, there's no reason why they ever really need to to step off of the mat and, and stop training. And that I, I can see parents not really understand that because most sports have seasons. You know, like okay, it's wrestling season, mm-hmm. it's football season, and then they they do that for the few months, and then it's on to the next thing, or you know yep. it's nothing at all sometimes but uh, with this this just seems to be pretty constant and i think that some parents don't really understand uh, that type of commitment they don't understand uh, why it doesn't have a little defined stopping point necessarily <laughs> right well and our biggest competition you know um isn't the karate school down the road or you know anything like that it's actually you know soccer programs and and you know volleyball programs and <laughs> those types of things those activities are actually you know as far as us that's the challenge that that we have to overcome as far as getting kids enrolled and sticking with this is is uh you know uh competing with those programs yeah and you're likely competing with uh to keep the kids there you're likely competing with a parent that also did soccer uh, when yeah. they were younger and they want their kid to have the same great experience that they had. There's not that jiu-jitsu background that they had as a child now that they want to share with their chi- with their kids. So uh, a little bit tougher on right. that as well, but that's uh, definitely a hurdle that can be overcome. Yes. Another thing that we get is, you know, um, after kids have enrolled, <laughs> and this is something that I think isn't a topic that isn't touched on quite enough is, 
is that, you know, everybody, regardless of your age, when you're doing martial arts for any length of time, you're going to plateau. And, and when you plateau, uh, if you're, if you're aware of what's going on, you know, uh, myself, I've been doing this for a long, long time. And I, and I tell people, you know, I actually get excited when I hit a plateau because I know that once I get through the plateau, I'm going to have some kind of breakthrough and it's going to be really cool, you know? Um, but kids don't have that same mindset when they have a plateau and things aren't as exciting as it, as it was, you know, in the first couple months that they were training, um, they, they, they want to move on to something else. You know, we, we want to do something else. And, 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 uh, parents, <clears throat> I have conversations with parents about this all the time. And I say, you know, the kid, your child doesn't realize that they're going through a plateau and that's then they're going to have a breakthrough and something, you know, really cool is going to happen for them. That's going to make it to where everything works really awesome again. Um, but us as parents, we need to be able to communicate that with the kids and keep them training, you know? Um, and I, one of the things that I say very often is that kids don't quit jujitsu parents do, you know, parents are the decision makers and they're the ones that want to keep their kids, you know, that should keep their kids enrolled and not let, you know, a six year old child come and make the decision. Hey, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to do something else. Um, you know, we don't want the kid to hate it. We don't want to push them into it so much that they hate it, but we do want them to see the benefits and the results of it. You know, so uh, oftentimes I'll encourage them to at least keep your child enrolled until the next promotion, you know, and when they, when they get their new belt or their new stripe on their belt or whatever, they're going to be excited about that. And we'll see, you know, if they want to push, if they want to move on or if they want to, uh, you know, if they want to continue training or if they want to, you know, if they really do not like it and want to do something else. Um, so I, I think that's kind of a tough part too, is, is teaching parents how to deal with teaching their kids about the plateaus that we all go through and how to break through those things. Do you recommend that kids compete in jujitsu? Um, we have kids that compete. It's something that I don't push. It's something that if, if they want to compete, I uh, want to coach them and make sure that they're doing the best that they possibly can and getting the results that they, that they want, you know, but our main thing is um, well, our motto is a, is a, is a quote from Jigoro Kano and it's, it's, a, it's uh, that it's not better to be, or it's not important to be better than somebody else, but it's better to, uh, but better than yesterday. And so um, when, even when I'm doing rank promotions or things like that, I, I talk to the kids, I talk, even the adults, I tell them, look, this is not because you're any better than anybody else that's below your rank in this room. This is, this is due to the fact that you're better than the person you were yesterday. You know, if you're a, a you know, a white belt getting a, a gray belt as a kid, you know, that you're the, you're the gray belt who could beat the white belt kid that you were yesterday it has nothing to do with anybody else in the room, you know? And so it's more about self growth than it is about competing with others. And I think that competition for them, the way that we, we approach it is it's a good testing ground for them. Um, if they, if they have it in them, if they want to compete, you know, we want them to do well, but it's, it's also a learning process for them. You know, if they go and they compete and they come back, you know, I, I never really, discuss much about winning and losing. We talk about, you know, did you learn and did you have fun? You know, those are, those are the main things because especially at that age, you know, um, I think the pressure of winning and losing can be too much for them. And just, it's, it's supposed to be a learning experience. When you go and compete, it's more, it's still a learning experience. You're going to test your skills and see what, 
holes there are in your game that you can come back and, and develop those things. Just from your, uh, I guess, experience and what you've seen in the past, would you uh, predict that kids that compete stick around in jiu-jitsu longer or maybe they're just more interested in it so they, they compete? Or do they compete and then quit after the competition? Or what's kind of the – does competing help uh, kids keep training? Boy, that's a tough one. Um I don't really see much of a difference um, as far as that goes. I think that, that I think a lot of it has to do with the mindset of, of the kids and of the parents, you know, uh, sometimes if the parents are, are um, putting a lot of pressure on the kids, then, then that can, you know, that can work against them. Um, I think that what, what we do here is we, we try to develop kids into, into leadership roles, and I think that helps with the longevity of, of keeping them uh, training is, is the, you know, we, we take them from a beginner student to, uh, a, you know, a fundamental student to an advanced student to um, into an instructor, you know, assistant instructor type position. We have what we call a storm team. It's a special team of role models. And these kids come in and they, they help lead warm ups for the other kids classes and, and they, they, they get to do some extra things inside and outside the dojo that, that, you know, um, are kind of preparing them to be assistant instructors. So we're kind of building our bench strength too, for future instructors as well. But, um, but I think that, that, um, helps them see some, some goals that they would like to achieve, you know, within, within the program. And so it makes it to where they want to stay longer. And, and eventually, you know, uh, after so many years, you, you just, you're just hooked. You can't get away from this stuff after you've been doing it for a while. Uh, Larry, I'm curious about your teaching method with the kids. Are they all in the same class or are there multiple levels of kids classes and, and what kind of techniques are they learning? Um, as far as jiu-jitsu goes, we have multiple levels. There's, um, our essentials class is, is a, a four through six year old class. And, um, and, and that's a class where we do, we use something called transfer teaching. So, and this has been, um, I, I guess a, a, it's a pretty amazing how the kids respond to this. And I actually use this uh, transfer teaching method in uh, all of our classes. Um, but, but in our, in our essentials class, that's exclusively how we do it. And And what it means is that we, the coaches, the trainers, we do the techniques with the kids. Um, and so a lot of times they don't know necessarily what a guard is or what a mount is or a side mount or, you know, those things. We put them in the positions and we guide them through the movements, you know, so um, so that they, they, they're getting it 100% correct every time they do it because we're putting it in, in the proper position. And, and, and then we, um, uh, you know, we do a few reps with them with that and, and we're developing their muscle memory, you know, while we're doing that. And eventually what happens with those kids is when they graduate up into the next class, which is kind of a beginner class for seven through 12 year olds, we call it our fundamentals class. When they get to that class, they, they continue doing pretty much the same curriculum, but they're now doing it, doing it with partners, their own size and age. Um, and, and then by then they've, you know, they, we were in that class, really what we're developing is their ability to be a good training partner, um, you know, and listening and following directions and being able to drill, you know, being able to go do, do, do drills and that type of thing. And then once they've got that nailed in pretty good, then they move up into our, um, our advanced classes, which are split up. We have a, a, a 
six through eight year old program and a nine through 12 year old program. Um, and we only split those up mostly because of, uh, uh, well, there was a lot of them. We, so we had to, to, <laughs> to, uh, break it up a little bit, but then also because, you know, there's a big size difference between a six year old and a 12 year old. Sometimes it's just, you know, the, the 12 year old we've had, I've had 12 year olds that were, you, you know, 185 pounds. So like, okay, well, he's not going to work with the 40 pound six year old. So, um, so that's, you know, so we had to separate them up like that too. And then once the kids get to 13, they bump up into our teen and adult class and we have the teens and adults in, in, in one class in the evening. So, um, and we're here, uh, six days a week. Um, we have uh, classes Monday through Friday, and then we have a, you know, morning, early afternoon class on Saturdays. And that seems to work pretty well for everybody. It sounds like it's going good over there. Uh, can I add? Can yeah, I add absolutely. something to that about the kids program? Okay, um, and you know, with our um, advanced kids, uh, you know, part of what determines whether they, you know, when they make it into the advanced class is their ability to partner up, you know, with the with a good practice partner, not just somebody who they can goof around with, you know, and and be silly with, but you know, be able to find a partner that that, that they can get the work done with, you know, and hustle through the drills. And, you know, if they're, if they're able to do that, then, then they get to move up into the advanced class. Once they, once they move into the advanced class, they actually get to do more drills because they're able to get through it faster. And then they actually get in a lot more grappling rounds, you know, so they get to do rounds of grappling at the, at the end of class and which is, you know, super valuable for their development, but you, you can't, you, um, you can't grapple if you don't have grappling tools, you know, so, so they have to go through that that fundamental stage first to develop, you know, some basic skill sets um, before they get to move up and then actually get to roll uh, with other kids and, and, you know, spend time doing that. Are there some techniques that you uh, really focus on teaching or some that you don't teach at all to the kids? We we try to make the focus, uh, especially for the fundamentals kids, um, to be just about, about position, uh, positional control. You know, so um, if you're on the bottom, they learn a, a couple of basic sweeps. Um, they learn how to uh, maintain, you know, uh, top control positions. They learn how to do some basic guard passing uh, and, and a couple of basic takedowns. Um, and so, but but not really focused on submissions at all in that class. Um, when they move into the advanced class and they've got a good handle on positional control and that type of things, then then we start working on some basic submissions, you know, like a basic armbar, um, basic uh, Americana, yeah, uh, those types of things. Um, and and their temperament has to be right too. That's another qualifier for getting into that class is if they've got. You know, if they're overly aggressive and and can you know hurt another kid, we we're going to wait a while to before we put them in there and let them get a little bit more control and, and self discipline before we bump them into there. Um, you know, so and we're always um, very careful with the kids as far as communicating with them. You know that this is this is this technique could potentially cause an injury if you misuse it. You know, and so um, we make sure that they're uh, I guess, uh, uh, mature enough to understand, you know, those things before, before we start teaching them submissions. We've talked a lot about uh, jiu-jitsu and kids and benefits, uh, that it provides. Uh, how about with adults? What, what, uh, what are your adults getting out of, uh, jiu-jitsu and the class being part of the team? Well, we really, you know, um, 
I, I really like to emphasize a, a family atmosphere. You know, I, I think that um, <laughs> I, I, I joke around, but it's a joke, but not a joke. I talk about how um, studies have shown that, you know, if with a, was a 22 second hug releases the, the oxytocin hormone, which is a bonding hormone. And I, and I tell them, Hey, we're hugging each other all the time in here. You know, we're, <laughs> it's a sometimes a violent hug, but we're still, we're still hugging each other. So you, you, you're very close proximity, you know, with, with the people that you're working with you you know, you're, you're sweating on each other, you're smashing each other, you're sitting on each other, you know, and, and those types of things. And so you, you develop a, a different relationship than you would, you know, like I know when I did striking arts, I didn't, I didn't develop any kind of relationship with people like that. You know, your space bubble was, was way bigger. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's super, super common. And you know, this in, in the jujitsu community to see people hugging each other at the end of practice. It's not, I mean, it's, it's reasonable. Everybody does it, you know, and that's because we're just so close to each other when we're on the mat. And so I think that's part of what helps um, develop those, those relationships is just the, you know, you're, you're physically close to somebody um, and, and you're helping each other develop, you know, and we're learning to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And we're, you know, I, I really like to stress a team atmosphere too, to where, you know, um, a mutual benefit. So if, you know, if I'm training with somebody and, and they, you know, catch me with some technique, you know, and, and then that's cool. They catch me with it again. Okay. That's cool. You catch me with it a third time, you know, Hey, maybe you should tell me what I'm doing wrong and help me fix it, you know? And if I fix it, then, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to improve. And if I improve and you can't catch me with that thing anymore, you're, you're going to improve too, you know? And so people are you know, climbing the ladder together. And I, I really emphasize that, that mentality to our students here. And so everybody is, uh, it's built a pretty good culture over the years to where everybody's very helpful. Um, we use a mentoring system also. So when we have a new student coming in, I partnered them with one of our more advanced people, you know, who's, uh, you know, not just going to smash them and beat them up, but who's going to educate them as we go through the process. You know, if I'm teaching some drills, it's kind of, you, you've got a the personal tutor right there helping you, you know, and then of course the advanced student benefits from, from teaching as well, because they're helping the, the new student learn, you know? And so we, we kind of had to, um, educate some people on that because not, not necessarily in the early days did, did an advanced person want to work with the beginner, you know, that they did, they didn't necessarily want to do that. They felt like they were being held back. But once people realize that they're, that they're learning by teaching, you know, they're learning greater detail by helping somebody else, then, then that it really took off after that. And every, no, you know, everybody here is always happy to help new people when they come in and help each other. Even if you've been here for a long time, if you're struggling with a technique, you know, you're going to find somebody in the room that's going to help you with it. Yeah. The learning by teaching idea uh, often surprises me. I could, I could do a technique. I could, I could you know, feel like I really know it very well. When somebody asks me to show it and I have to kind of break it down and try to learn <laughs> it from their perspective, it, it oftentimes things are realized that I really didn't, uh, didn't think about or have to even uh, worry about because that's how I'm doing this. And they might find a little roadblock, like, it's not working. What, what am I doing wrong? Well, I guess I'm also doing this. I didn't explain that to you at all because I always do that, you know, this particular <laughs> way. And, right. and so it's really right. a way that to really learn about some techniques or some things we do on the mat, a, a deeper level with somebody who's not as skilled as you. Right. I, I always say I learned more from teaching than I ever did from doing. Um, 
and and that's because you know especially as the if you're the head instructor you have you know a, a large number of students then and they're all going to learn in their own different ways and so you have to approach it several different ways in in you know teaching one technique one person might might grasp it right away another person might be you know a more audio person who you know who needs to hear you explain it another person might need to feel it you know so uh so those are things that i learned you know over the years by the trial and error you know um but i think that i think that definitely teaching helps you learn things in a much greater depth than just you know just practicing it absolutely and that's a skill that you'll pick up a little later on you know, if you're if you're brand new, you're probably not going to be teaching very much jujitsu. But as you get a little bit better, you'll get paired yeah. up with somebody who uh, needs your advice, and that's uh, something that is part of your growing and development as well. Uh, Larry, what would be a good goal for a student during their first year of training? I, I think a good goal. Um, you, you mean like a like a, a a new beginner student? Yeah. I, I think a good goal would be to. Um, to develop a you know a sense of confidence that that comes with jujitsu that at first you know it's um, for those of us that would have been doing it for a while um, and this is this is something another thing that that I'd like to mention is that you know as instructors we forget what it's like to be brand new to this stuff sometimes and 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 you kind of take things for granted you know when the the how uncomfortable it is for somebody when they first walk through the door to do what we do. You know, even I watch parents sometimes who are, you know, less involved and they'll, they'll watch a class and and you can see them cringe because they're just not comfortable with the idea of somebody uh, laying on top of somebody or sitting on them or smashing them, you know, and seeing that kind of a struggle is, is pretty foreign to people. Um, I think that that's, uh, that's something that as instructors, we have to remember and, 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 you know, and help people get past that point of, of that discomfort that, that is in the beginning for a lot of people. Um, and, and that's something that, you know, I think as a new student, that's kind of their goal or should be their goal is to, um, learn to not be, um, afraid of, of this and, and learn to process and problem solve. Uh, and I think that that, uh, that, that, that will help them in everyday life as well. You know, because if you're, you know, if you have somebody who's who's trying to arm lock you or, or triangle choke you or uh, do something like that, and and you can't just not deal with it. You you have to you have to solve that problem. And if you don't, then you know you're going to have to tap out or pass out or something. But um, so so I think that I think it's a it's a very important thing for people to be to learn how to be comfortable being uncomfortable and learn how to problem solve. Um, it doesn't mean that they're going to get that overnight. It's a, you know, it's a process of course, but I think that it's a, it's a gradual thing. And sometimes students don't always even realize that, that they're having those successes. Um, I explain that to them frequently, you know, Hey, I'm standing up here and I'm watching you. I mean, you, you're doing stuff that, that you was totally foreign to you, you know, six weeks ago, you would have no idea what the heck that was. And now, now you're able to perform it uh, and not, necessarily flawlessly but you're doing it you understand what it is you know the mechanics of it and, and I, so i think just getting comfortable with that that whole situation and 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 uh tying that in with your everyday life is is i think a big thing for people to do um that, that they don't necessarily see in the beginning when they first come in yeah and that's a good point that you made that 
we forget about that. Uh, after you've been mm-hmm. doing this for a while, you forget how hard that was at the beginning uh, to overcome yeah. that um, that uncomfortableness. Right. I had a guy recently come in, uh, a teenager, and and uh, I met with him twice. He 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 came in just to you know schedule a, a time to come in and train, and and so uh, we scheduled it. And then when he actually showed up to train, the guy he was physically shaking. He was so nervous about getting on the mat. And, and, uh, and, you know, and, and it reminded me, you know, because for us, it's so natural. We just come in and we do our thing, you know, we don't think about it. And, and, uh, and I'm looking at him and he, and he shook my hand his his palms were cold and sweaty, you know, and I realized this guy's having a panic attack right now because he's so worried wow. about getting on the mat, yeah. you know? And so I told him, I said, look, I, you're, you're not, this isn't fight club. You know, you know, you don't have to fight. <laughs> you're you're going to come here and we're going to, we're going to show you some, some techniques, you know, and, and you're going to drill some stuff with some people and it's going to be fun. You know, it's not, we're, nobody in there is going to, is going to attack you and, and, and try to beat you up. This is going to be a fun day for you, you know? And I, I, I talked him down and calmed him down a little bit. And then of course he had a great time. So, but it was a, it was a reminder to me like, Oh man, you know, this is his first day here and he's kind of freaking out. <laughs> yeah. You, you really have no idea what's going on in their head about what, uh, what's stressing them as far as concerns for their own safety? What am I getting into? You know, yeah. Is this fight club? <laughs> you know, definitely not. We want you to break the first two rules of fight club and talk about jujitsu and bring other people in as well. So that, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Larry, I'm interested in, uh, you as earlier martial arts, as an early jujitsu person, uh, what were you like as a blue belt? Kind of take me back to that time and, uh, <laughs> and describe yourself as a blue belt for me. Well, it's kind of a, I'm kind of in a, a I guess a, a unique situation. Um, you know, when I started doing judo at the college, it was uh, at 1990, and um, that was just a few years before UFC made its big debut. Um, and then in the, you know, a few years later when that happened, uh, a lot of us would stay after class and and grapple, um, you know, besides just the stand-up, you know, judo throws and that type of thing. I, my instructor was pretty, like, pretty educated on the groundwork, too. But being a, a typical, you know, Japanese judo guy, he wanted the focus to be in the stand-up. So he really didn't teach us a, a whole lot of that stuff until we got to about a brown belt level in judo. And then we would work on our groundwork. Um, so but I had a lot of friends that would come and we would train after class. Uh, we would stay in the mat room and we would we'd just grapple for, you know, a couple of hours at a time. And so that was our that was kind of our our introduction to jiu-jitsu. There weren't really jiu-jitsu instructors around back then. They were hard to find in our area. Um, if you wanted to go, you know, train under anybody who had any type of rank, you had to, you had to travel quite a ways. And, um, some of those friends that were, were rolling with me back then had, uh, were, were students at karate schools, uh, taekwondo schools, tangsudo schools, that type of thing. And so, um, Back then, the jiu-jitsu tournaments were these little sideshow things at these karate tournaments. And, and my karate friends would let me know, hey, there's going to be a jiu-jitsu tournament. And, and you'd go, and, and there'd be anywhere from 8 to 20 people there to compete. You know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a huge thing. And they'd have a, a big karate tournament going on, and you'd have a, a little, you know, 16-by-16 uh, 16 16 mat area off in a corner someplace in a gymnasium, and here's your jiu-jitsu tournament. Um, 
And so, and, and oftentimes, you you know, there are no weight classes, no rank classes. It just you know, people showed up and you guys are just going to roll, you know, you're going to figure it out or, or, or maybe they would kind of eyeball us and, and decide, okay, well, this is the, these guys are the lightweight guys. These guys are the middleweight guys. These guys are the heavyweight guys, uh, and, and go do your thing. And so, um, so that's kind of what it was like in the, in the early days, but I wasn't even ranked in jujitsu. I was just a judo guy. Um, and, and I, and I watched the rules change, you know, there was each tournament had its own set of rules. There was no really set rules for, for things as far as the scoring system and that kind of thing. But, um, you know, eventually, you know, jujitsu really, really took off and there started to become some more quality instructors around. And when we opened our dojo in 2002, I still wasn't uh, affiliated with IBJJF or anything like that, any kind of um, particular instructor. You know, I'd been to some Tim Cartmel seminars and some Hoyter Gracie seminars and some, some other, some other seminars, you know, and, and, and done that thing, but not really um, been ranked in jujitsu. Um, and, and that didn't happen actually up until about three years ago when we became an affiliate with impact jujitsu. And that partially happened because we really wanted to ramp up our jujitsu program but I wasn't uh, ranked under any any particular professor. Um, I, I'd just been training, you know, and doing judo and, and doing grappling. And uh, and we had, you know, quite a few students that were competing regularly in jiu-jitsu and, and submission wrestling tournaments and that type of thing, but, but um, weren't really, you know, IBJJF ranked or anything like that. And so, so we aligned with Impact Jiu-Jitsu and Michael Chapman, and so, uh, I, so for, from the outside perspective, it might look as though I had transitioned through some ranks rather quickly, um, going from, you know, from 2013 to, uh, now and, and being a brown belt right now. Um, but from the inside reality is that, you know, uh, I've been doing this stuff for, you know, a couple of decades <laughs> and, and uh, learning it and practicing it and, and, and going to different places and, and learning it and practicing it and, and drilling it and drilling it and drilling it. And, and so, um, so I went from a white belt to a brown belt, I guess, I guess what could be considered uh, quickly, but, um, but really because I, I've already been doing it for a long, long time. Um, so, uh, you know, as, uh, I just recently, came out of, I guess, retirement <laughs> to compete. And I competed at the, uh, um, SJJIF, uh, world championships down in long beach. And, uh, I got, I, I got a second place in my division. Um, but, uh, it, it, re- it sparked my interest again to where I, 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 I enjoyed it and I really want to compete some more. So that's my plan for this year. And my 2017 goal is to get in some more competition. Um, I'm 47 years old, so I like to get it, you know, while I can. <laughs> and that's that's cool. That's a, I can I can understand your story of uh, not having really a formal rank or anything, and then suddenly, you know, you've been training for a long time, and it's like, okay, we got to get this guy, the you know, a more accurate ranking. So uh, and then and then taking that and going competing with it, um, that that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Well, we wanted to be able to rank our students and, and, you know, and have them legitimately ranked in jujitsu. And so, um, so that was a big part of it. And, you know, I've been friends with the guys up at Impact Jiu-Jitsu for a long, long time. Um, you know, Michael Chapman, Armand DeBruge, uh, um, Brian.
Brian Marogue and, and, uh, Matt Leach, you know, those guys run, run the schools up there. And, and, uh, I've been uh, friends with Matt Leach since high school. And, uh, he was actually one of my judo students at the college, uh, years ago, and then moved away and continued to study jujitsu and eventually, you know, got to his black belt and, and he's a, uh, first degree black belt right now. And, uh, he was my main contact up there and he said, Hey, you know what? We, I know you want to, I know you want to get this, uh, ranking system, you know, all locked up. And so, um, this is something that we can, we can definitely help you with, you know, we have the, the right guys to, to make that happen. And so, um, so that's kind of, kind of where, where all that kind of unfolded. Um, and Chapman is a, uh, a black belt under Chris Howder. So this is, you know, it's, I'm pretty uh, happy with that lineage as well. <laughs> yeah, that that is that is pretty cool. Larry, where could somebody find you training if they want to to get some mat time with you or uh, get a hold of you? Well, we're we're in Roseburg, um, uh, Roseburg, Oregon, and uh, we have a website. It's uh, roseburgdojo.com, dot com, um, and you know there's information on there, contact information, that type of thing. Um, the uh, we're we're open. Like I said, six days a week, our adult evening classes are, you know, um, we do that Monday through Friday. Friday is our kind of our open mat day. We call it Randori, but it's open mat where we come in and we grapple. Um, we spend, you know, hour and a half, two hours just, just getting in rounds of grappling and troubleshooting and that type of thing. Um, but, uh, yeah, our, uh, we're also on, uh, have a YouTube channel, um, it's Dynamic Martial Arts Roseburg. Um, we post videos on there of, uh, basic, basic techniques, nothing super fancy, just some basic techniques that are part of our curriculum for, um, you know, white to blue belt students mostly. Um, so, you know, basic scissor sweeps and that type of thing, nothing, nothing super duper fancy. Um, every once in a while we'll do something cool just for, just for fun, but, um, it's mostly basics. And then of course on, on, on Facebook, you know, we're, uh, we're on social media, so, um, if you look at, I think, Dynamic Martial Arts Roseburg on Facebook, that, that's a, another good way to find us. Awesome. I'll put uh, links to those in the show notes for people to find. Uh, I appreciate you talking with us today. Do you have any uh, final words for the uh, for the grappler out there listening to what you have to say? If you haven't tried jiu-jitsu, you should. I think that it's uh, – I have a biased opinion. I think it's for everybody. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and and, and that's, that's arguable, of course. but. I think that um, something I would like to emphasize also is that it's it's not just for for guys. You know, um, we do a, a women's self defense program, um, and we do women's self defense uh, seminars pretty regularly. And, and and I think that for self defense, jujitsu is one of the is is in my opinion the most practical art for self defense. And so I think that people sometimes get caught up in the sport aspect of it and and forget that there's a self defense. Uh, you know, element to it as well. And, and so I think that for, for women and for kids in particular, I think it's a really good thing for them to learn. Um, I think also a conversation that I've had a lot here lately, uh, you know, we have kids that train with us because their parents have brought them in and the parents are saying, you know, I've, I don't, I don't know, numerous times I've had this conversations, um, where the parent tells me, you know, I did martial arts when I was a kid, and I and and I really wish I would have stuck with it. And you 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 never hear somebody say, you know, my parents, you know, made me stick with this, and 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 I really regret that I got my black belt. You know, that that doesn't happen. You 
you know, it's something that, that it takes time. And, but I think that, um, if you're, you know, if you have a kid and you're wanting to get your kid interested in it, you should, if you're an adult and maybe you did martial arts in the past and, and, and regret stopping it, get started again. You know, I, I get, I get the question sometimes, how, you know, uh, am I too old to start this? And I, I say, you're too old not to, you know, you, you need to do it. Everybody should do it. There you go. I, I love it. Uh, I also am a firm believer that everyone uh, can, can do jiu-jitsu and, and definitely should at least try it. And uh, <laughs> you might even like it. It's a, it's a fun way to stay in shape and it brings so many other benefits to your life as well. Uh, Larry, it's been a pleasure Absolutely. and I'll uh, uh, be in contact with you. Okay. Thank you very much. Well, I'd like to thank Larry Keith uh, for taking the time to come on the show. Um, you know, it's just incredible having the guy on and just the submission, uh, no pun intended, I guess we'd say, the submission for one of his students to be, you know, coach of the year just shows the type of guy he is. And I, you could get that from the interview. Just a, just an incredible coach, an incredible person, uh, incredible teammate. Yep. And he was up against quite a bit of competition as well because a lot of you guys sit in uh, your coaches. So uh, honored to have him on the show. Uh, really thrilled that he did it. It wasn't a requirement for him getting coach of the year, but uh, asking him if he'd like to talk about Shih Tzu and what he's doing over there and, and glad that he was uh, willing to do that and get to see what he's doing there and really helping his community and his students uh, a lot and definitely a person to look up to as a coach and as a, as a Jiu Jitsu practitioner. So uh, uh, great having him on the show. Yeah, definitely. Um, hey, speaking of the show, check out BJJ Brick on social media. Um, we're not just on Facebook. You can catch us on Twitter, catch us on YouTube. Our YouTube channel is, is actually blowing up, not uh, physically, but uh, more and more people are checking it out. So check us out on YouTube. We're also on Reddit um, and a couple other social media outlets. So, uh, and also tell your friends about it. Let let them know about our YouTube channel. and. Uh, uh, and hopefully you all like it. All right, Gary, uh, time again for the Referee's Corner. So here we go. Now it is time for the Referee Corner with David Silverfox Karshmer. The Silver Fox is a BJJ black belt that has refereed over 3,000 matches. Gi and no gi, kids and adults from white belt to black. And now he answers your questions. David, what would you do if you're uh, refereeing a competition and somebody is obviously sandbagging? Well, that's a tough question to answer because uh, sandbagging itself is hard to define. Uh, some competitions have actually made it um, uh, a priority where they actually would keep track of competitors' um, a competition record to make sure that, you know, they're literally were called anti sandbagging um, records. So uh, for those competitions that maybe that don't do that, or there's so many, um, you know, it's, it's hard to say, and it kind of breaks out into, you know, two considerations as well. It's a little easier to see a blue belt and what a blue belt is doing uh, because he's in his gi and he's wearing his blue belt. But when people move around in no gi, you really don't know what belt they might be or what divisions that they're that they're entering, and uh, it could be a little more challenging. As far as the referee's obligation, it's kind of not uh, part of the referee's role to um, 
have an impact, usually in bracketing in general, or certainly uh, knowledge of individual competitors and where they may fit. That's really something that rests on the tournament organization. But hey, there are times when you see somebody in a division and they're steamrolling all their all their competition, and you say to yourself, "Hey, come on." Um, personally, the only thing I'll do is. Um, I would ask the competitor like, hey, how long have you been, uh, you know, blue belt? And uh, I may say to the coach, give the coach an elbow and be like, wow, looks like he's ready for, you know, purple belt. Um, so more like friendly suggestions or kind of a, a wink, wink, nudge, nudge that your competitor um, maybe is not in the appropriate division. Um, something I'll add to that, that that's sometimes um, – hard to know is let's say that uh, somebody's a, I don't know, a 10 year judo competitor and a black belt, but uh, guess what? They just started Brazilian jiu-jitsu and they've only been training for a year and they're a blue belt. Um, when you start seeing them tossing people around, um, you think to yourself, wow, this guy is way, you know, outclassing his competition, but then you'll see other parts of his game that maybe are less sophisticated. So, um, you know, it's it's hard with so much cross training uh, to really put a, an accurate finger on it. Um, but again, I don't think the referee's obligation is to do something specific about it. It sounds sounds like it's more the organization. Some of them will focus more on on trying to make the matches as fair as possible by keeping records, and and some it's you know more of an honor system. And if you're you're saying you're this belt or you say you've been training this long. Uh, compete in that division we're trying to uh, kind of a sportsmanship type of a attitude i'd say it's mostly um you know it's it's mostly an honor system uh much you know which is inherent in martial arts it's inherent in belt promotions you know it it should definitely be an honor system and uh the only thing that sticks out i think um most obviously is if you know the same blue belt is coming to the same tournament and he's winning the same division uh tournament after tournament you know, somebody has to raise a question like, hey, you know, is it time for a belt promotion or or do we want this person in this division? So um, it's it's hard to identify sometimes. Um, it's unfortunate if it does happen, but I, I don't think it's a huge part of the game. I, I think some people get frustrated sometimes with uh, somebody, let's say you, you won blue belt division, you get bumped up to purple, you know, during purple belt competition, like two weeks later, you also win that. Now, there's no obligation to make you a brown belt right away just because you won that purple belt. You've been a purple belt for two weeks. You just happen to be uh, really picking it up very well and competing well. It, it, kind of that area where I'm going to spend my time as a purple belt. I'm going to probably win a lot of tournaments. And sure, it's going to be rough for everybody else around me, but uh, I don't need to become a brown belt within a few weeks or even a year after getting my purple belt. It, it's just uh, – do you have anything to say about that? Yeah, I, two things actually come to mind. One is that, um, you know, there are some people very early on in their jujitsu journey that develop a set of skills or a particular game that is super effective, um, particularly against people their level. And uh, they can use it almost like a formula to finish people off rather quickly, whether it be in their own school or it be in competition. Uh, where you see the weakness or the chinks in the armor, and, and I'll use blue belt as the category very often uh, associated with sandbagging, you know, that transition from white to blue and blue to purple, is that you'll see somebody that when they're moved outside their game, you'll suddenly see that their other skills are not at the same level. And when you see that, then you go, oh, okay, I see why he may not be the next belt level yet. He's got a lot of work to do in these other areas. Um, so, so that comes to mind uh, as, as one scenario. Another one that's very common is when 
you see someone working in a no gi advanced division and they are just super competitive or maybe they win uh, no gi advanced and then you see uh, it's the time for the gi part of the competition and you see them put on a white or a blue belt and you're like wait a second. <laughs> so, um, you know, we have to understand and accept that a lot of schools these days, uh, can be no gi focused and these guys don't train in the gi. They don't get promoted with belts in the gi. Um, uh, a lot of the, uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu community, uh, gets furious when people get promoted. You know, we've heard some famous MMA fighters or famous grapplers getting promoted to black belt that have never, um, uh, competed or worn the gi uh so you can't have it both ways you know if the guy's never been promoted as a a gi player then he's wearing the belt that he was last given and it just doesn't always seem to fit so these are a a lot of the complicated issues that fall into sandbagging but in general i'll mention sandbagging comes in as an excuse a lot of times for competitors much like um uh, referees uh biases or favoritism or you know bad refing it becomes like the dotted line for competitors on why they failed, why they um, did not succeed or win competition. It was because of, you know, the other guy not being in the appropriate division. So we have to watch and make sure that people are not um, using that as a crutch. This has been The Referee Corner with David Silverfox Karshmer. If you have a question for The Referee Corner, send it to bjjbrick at gmail.com. And of course, go to thegrapplingreferee.com for great articles, videos, and podcast interviews by David Silverfox Karchmer. If you have a question for the Referee's Corner, send it to bjbrick at gmail.com and we'll pass it along to David Karchmer and uh, keep this uh, going with all these fun questions. We've got a few more in the queue and uh, we'll do them every few weeks. So uh, thanks again to David for that. Thank you, David. If you want to support the podcast, you could do what Gary just recommended. Tell your friend about it. That means a ton to us. Uh, If you want to support us financially, we have an account on a website called Patreon. Uh, There's details to that in the show notes. Uh, Basically, you would uh, donate a certain amount per show, and uh, and it would chart. Let's say you want to donate a dollar per show. Uh, At the end of the month, it will look how many shows we did for, and then it will charge your card four dollars. And that would go towards helping the show and keeping this brick floating. So it's, it's pretty simple. There's different re- little rewards we have set up at each level. So check it out. There's a little video on there you can check out and really uh, kind of get explained to you uh, what's going on there. So uh, Patreon's been a lot of help. We have definitely some of our biggest fans on there supporting the show on Patreon. And that really means a lot to us. And uh, if you are on Patreon and, and supporting us and you're not in the... Uh, Facebook private group, uh, send me a message because I definitely want you in there. I know most of them are, but some people I can't find on Facebook, and I don't, I know not everybody has Facebook. But uh, it's a place occasionally I'll go and I'll say, hey, I'm interviewing this person today. You know, What do you guys want me to ask? And, and I get a little bit of information. Occasionally I'll ask you know, a question. I'll say, hey, so-and-so wants me to ask this question, and that's usually from the private group. And I'll throw up, like I had some T-shirt designs I was working on and kind of throws up there to, get opinions from you guys. And that's just a place we can go there and have fun. And also on the private group, we were making fun of Gary pretty hard. <laughs> I was Photoshopping little, uh, fun, you know, hairstyles and stuff on him the other day. So that was kind of a good time. It was a few weeks ago, a few months ago, but, uh, yeah, good times on the private group. And we get that through Patreon. Yep. Good times is expense of me. Yeah, you big always, bully. <laughs> always the best way to do it. Hey, speaking of good times, at the expense of our friend Gary. Here we go, my friend. 
Yeah, I led you down that path. Thank you for the easy layup. Didn't even pull my hammy on that one. Uh, oh, another one. <laughs> Burn. Yeah. That was below the, belt. Down. below the belt. Below uh, the belt. Actually, on the hamstring. Next Not show at eight. Two drink minimum. <laughs> Don't forget to tip your waitresses and bartender. Uh, Gary, you're, you have an audio book coming out. You know, we've got the first year in BJJ, and also we have the BJJ Brick Fun Pack. It has all the Matt Tales and, and some of the highlights of the world's most interesting grappler in there. But uh, we're trying to get Gary to make an audio book. But each week that he does this, he has no idea what the audio book is called. So he's got to kind of make up an uh, outline for it on the spot, tell us a little bit about the audio book. Gary, this week you're working on a book called Ghosts and Other Odd Happenings on the Mat. My experiences with the paranormal while grappling. So, uh, Gary, what is going on there? You've got a lot going uh, as far as experience on the mat. I didn't know you had this as well. You know, this is kind of scary, spooky. Yeah, you know, um, the problem is, is I, I told you earlier. You know, uh, I am being chased all the time. Um, that was kind of one of the big reasons I left New York and came out here to the Midwest is ghosts. And uh, the paranormal. Um, you know, one of my favorite shows is Poltergeist. Um, another one of my favorite movies is The Ring. Um, I also like to watch The Flintstones. That has nothing to do with anything, but I just thought I'd throw that in there. Um, but, so, you know, this this audiobook is, you know, going to talk about the best way to use jujitsu to take care of the paranormal. And I, I've used it over and over again and I've made all the mistakes and most of you people have probably never had to use jujitsu against a ghost so you don't know the different techniques that's going to work and so that's what I'm here to do I'm here to basically cut out all the fluff we're going to go right to the meat and potatoes um, if you're a vegetarian it'll still work so don't worry about that but it's you know it's just going to it's going to show you the moves that don't work like tell me Byron, okay, I know you've never been, you know, been attacked, you know, or had to, you know, throw down with a ghost. Tell me, do you think a Kimura would work well? I'm not even sure that a ghost has shoulders. Well, see, that's what I was going to tell you. Kimuras, arm bars, they don't work. I've never seen shoulders. I've never seen an arm on a ghost. So, I mean, those moves do not work. So, you cannot use them. I mean, so, there's not a lot of moves you can do. Um, a lot of it is, uh, you know, moves like bear hugs. And, you know, because the good thing is they can't get out of it because they don't have arms to, you know, open that bear hug open. So, uh, you know, you can hold them there for, you know, hours in a bear hug. They won't move, and pretty soon they'll just get tired and quit. And uh, that that's normally the what I found works best, you know, just a, just an everyday bear hug. And uh, I guarantee you, you do that to any ghost, they're used to scaring people. They're like bullies. Most people won't fight a ghost. Ghosts are really horrible at fighting. They're just used to scaring everybody, and nobody steps up to them. So if you step up to them, you put a bear hug on the ghost, it's over. You may have to stay in there for about four or five hours till the ghost, you know, finally gets his spirit, no pun intended, broken. And, uh, you know, once that does happen, it's over. They won't mess with you again. And the thing about ghosts, they all know each other. They will tell other ghosts, and they will just leave you alone and go go mess with your good buddy. So uh, you won't have to worry about it. So definitely check it out. Um, it's actually going to be for free, you know, when this book comes out. I really just want to help people who, who have problems with the paranormal. Yeah, it's. I think maybe a subtitle will be uh, Breaking Spirits Instead of Elbows. 
or shoulder yeah. or something like that. I like yeah. that. Yeah, I'm going to use that. Yep. Use the, put that in the book. Gary, I, you know, I have, I've learned from you two techniques, definitely not moves, but maybe just a technique or a strategy that you could use on ghosts. The first one is your classic, uh, you know, what's that over there? And when the ghost turns to look, then you attack. In, in jitsu, you attack. In this situation, maybe you just take off running. I don't know what is Pensacola's shoes on or not. And no, you know, you never want to run from the ghost. They can fly. Uh, they don't get tired. They, can, they, they float. don't even have to flight, you know, wings or nothing. They just go. Yeah. So no, you don't want to do that. When they're not looking, though, it's a lot easier to get them in a bear hug. And then, you know, I guess one thing I didn't mention though, what you know, the way. Remember, I already told you you're probably going to have to bear hug them for four or five hours. What I do is I get like a seventy-pound Everlast punching bag. And I will just put my arms around it, and I'll start out like 10 minutes. Because, I mean, it's not easy to work up to four hours of bear hugging something. And I work my way up. And what I try to do is four sets of five hours. So, like, if I'm going to do bear hugs for a day, I need 20 hours. And I'll do four hours, take a minute rest, do another four hours, take a minute rest, four hours, minute rest, and my last four hours. And that way uh, you'll get good at being able to hold a bear or hold a ghost for uh you know 40 minutes to four hours it seems like the bear hug is a key fundamental to to this type of uh attacker and which kind of leads me to the second technique that i've seen you use with a lot of success uh in jiu-jitsu and you can also switch over to the ghost is to distract them with idle conversation or uh a few jokes and then sneak in there for that bear hug as they're talking or thinking about the joke or laughing about the joke. And you boom, you're in there and you're on it. Yeah, yeah. You know, another one I like to use that really gets the, you know, the ghost not thinking about what's going on in front of them. When they're not looking, I take a bag filled with dog poop and I light it on fire and I put it right in front of them. And uh, while they're stomping it out, that's when I attack. So uh, that all, that works really well. For years, I've wondered why you carry that bag around with you everywhere you go. And now I know. Yep. And you just thought I was huffing paint. I just thought you liked dog poop. I don't. I. I really didn't have a good theory. But now it all makes sense, and that's one less weird thing that I have to figure out about you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the book is going to be great. We're looking forward to it coming out, and we'll be uh, having more details about it very, very soon. I'm sure. Uh, Gary and I are both located in Wichita, Kansas, which is in, kind of in, in the middle of the United States. If you're traveling through, like our friend Mark the other day uh, from Florida, hit us up with an email, bjjbrick at gmail.com, or message us on our Facebook page, and we'll be happy to try to get on the mat with you and uh, have some good time. So if you want to like to travel while, while you train, or train while you travel, and uh, or do both. Uh, some people like <laughs> to train. And what about traveling and training while on the train? That could be done. That would be I guess you, epic. you could... You could put a mat in a train. Yeah, and you could bring a drill and start drilling. Something on train. Good point. Good point. <laughs> oh, Gary, I think we're losing it, my friend. Maybe we this lost. will be the last podcast we ever do because we lost it so bad. Or maybe next week we have Josh Hinger on the podcast, my friend. Noki World Champion I, 2016. I think we're all going to be Hinger team next week. Well, that's going to be great. So uh, catch us next week. As always, stay sweaty, my friends. And don't forget to shower. Thank you for listening. I hope you find the time today to roll. After all, 
the best way to get better at Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is to do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu.